Hello, everyone. I'm Warren Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Smith coming to you from Colorado Springs. And we'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. Each week, Warren and I bring you news about Christian ministries, as well as the latest in charity and philanthropy, all designed to help us become better stewards of the resources God has entrusted to us. On today's program, a new online database tracks sex abusers in or formerly associated with the Southern Baptist Convention. Also on today's program, Samaritan's Purse closes its hospital in Central Park as the COVID crisis abates there. Plus, Cedarville University's president has been placed on administrative leave for his handling of a sex abuser at his college. We begin today with a story Warren just mentioned of the database for sex offenders. The database tracks clergy associated or formerly associated with the Southern Baptist Convention, but it's not the Southern Baptist Convention that is maintaining the database. Yeah, you know, Natasha, for more than a decade, abuse survivor advocates have been asking the Southern Baptist Convention to establish a clergy predator database. And for just as long as they've confronted the denomination, uh, the denomination is determined to do nothing. Now, Megan and Dominique Benninger have set up the database on their own. It's called BaptistAccountability.org. Their work builds on the Stop Baptist Predators database that Krista Brown started and maintained from 2006 to 2012. That database contains 170 entries of convicted, admitted, and credibly accused Southern Baptist clergy sex offenders. Uh, The database also includes the Abuse of Faith database that the Houston Chronicle published in 2019, documenting 263 criminally convicted and plea bargained Southern Baptist sex offenders over a 20-year period. The Benegers say such a database is needed not only to protect kids and congregates, but also to send a message to the SBC that building such a database just isn't that hard, and the SBC could do it if it wanted to. Again and again, they say, we've been told that the Southern Baptist Convention takes this issue seriously. But if you take something seriously, it causes you to act. Up next, after a couple of months of ministry and controversy, the Samaritan's Purse is closing its hospital in Central Park. Yeah, the Central Park Field Hospital was erected by Samaritan's Purse a couple of weeks ago, but it'll shut down after it releases its last patient, likely on Friday, May the 8th, which is the day that we release this podcast. The 68-bed hospital is in Central Park's East Meadow, and it was run in partnership with nearby Mount Sinai Hospital. It was expected to stop admitting new patients on Monday as the number of new hospitalizations for critically ill coronavirus patients has fallen. The field hospital has been around since the last week of March, and the medical staff treated more than 300 patients. It also kicked up a storm of controversy as Samaritan's Purse was attacked by liberal ideologues and activist groups. New Yorkers from Mayor Bill de Blasio to City Council Speaker Corey Johnson criticized Samaritan's Purse and Franklin Graham because the Christian group required staff to sign a statement of faith affirming 
their Christian faith. But Franklin Graham responded to the criticism by saying that the field hospital doesn't discriminate in who it serves. We provide our services to everyone, regardless of race, ethnicity, religion, or sexual orientation, Franklin Graham said. We don't discriminate period. And not everyone was critical of Samaritan's Purse. That's right. The field hospital also drew its share of well-wishers and volunteers who plied the 244-member disaster response team, about 70 of them doctors and nurses, with free meals, snacks, and boots to thank them for helping New Yorkers in their time of need. By the way, the boots were because the field that they were in got muddy over time. It also benefited from the support and gratitude of the Mount Sinai health system itself. Graham said on Monday that the Samaritan's Purse medical team, in fact, would remain in New York City for a few weeks to assist the overworked staff at Mount Sinai. Warren, before we take a break, you have an update on a situation we reported on last week, the controversy at Cedarville University. Yeah, Cedarville University's Board of Trustees has placed its president, Thomas White, on administrative leave as uh, the board investigates both the hiring and the alleged past misconduct of a former theology professor there, Anthony Moore. Moore was terminated by Cedarville uh, on April 23rd, and he had been previously fired as a pastor at the Village Church in Fort Worth, Texas back in 2017 after he was accused of secretly videotaping a fellow staff member in the shower. Well, White hired Moore to work at Cedarville, an independent Baptist school, in August of 2017. Um, there was supposed to be a five-year restoration plan that Moore would go through under White's supervision. But when White fired Anthony Moore on April 23rd, he said that he learned the accusations against Moore were, in fact, more extensive than he had previously known. If that's true, does that mean that the Village Church was not honest in its disclosures about Moore? Well, that would be a logical conclusion, but the Village Church said in a statement last week that it had thoroughly informed Cedarville University back in 2017 about why Moore had been terminated, and it reiterated clearly that we do not believe he was fit for ministry of any kind. So the Village Church is maintaining that it did its duty, and the responsibility falls on White and Cedarville. Cedarville's Board of Trustees said in a statement on May the 1st that separate independent investigations would examine both Moore's conduct while he was employed at Cedarville and the process around his hiring, including interactions between White and Moore. Warren, we have to take a break, but when we return, Habitat for Humanity lays off staff and TV preacher Jim Baker denies any wrongdoings again. I'm Natasha Smith in Colorado Springs. And I'm Warren Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina. And we'll be back after this short break. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. 
Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host, Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch Weekly Podcast. Up next, Habitat for Humanity, one of the largest nonprofits in the country, just announced significant layoffs. Yeah, Habitat for Humanity International announced that it would reduce staff and other expenses in the face of the COVID-19 economic crisis. Approximately 10% of the staff in the organization would be laid off, and others would have their hours reduced. Uh, Habitat for Humanity uh, brought in approximately $300 million in the last fiscal year, fiscal year 2019. Uh, Nonprofit Times reported that Habitat has suspended the majority of its construction activities throughout the United States and even around the world. Uh, The more than 900 home improvement habitat restores in the United States and Canada have also been closed to the public. And we have another COVID-related story. It's also a follow-up of a story that we reported on a few weeks ago. TV preacher Jim Baker is asking a judge to dismiss a state lawsuit against him. Yeah, the lawsuit accused Baker of falsely claiming that a health supplement could cure the coronavirus. And the lawyer representing Jim Baker is former Governor Jay Nixon of Missouri. Now, the Missouri Attorney General, Eric Schmidt, who's a Republican, uh, sued Baker and his Morningside Church Productions in early March. Schmidt sought an injunction ordering Baker to stop selling Silver Solution as a treatment for the coronavirus on his TV program, The Jim Baker Show. Uh, The lawsuit said that Baker and a guest made the cure claim during a program on February the 12th. In a court filing on Monday of this week, though, Nixon, who is a Democrat who served two terms as governor before leaving office in 2017 and two terms as attorney general before that, called the lawsuit against Baker an assault on his religious freedom. The Missouri attorney general is not the only one who thinks Baker is wrong. Yeah, that's right. U.S. regulators have also warned Baker uh, and six others to stop selling items using what the government called false claims uh, that they could treat the coronavirus or keep people from catching uh, COVID-19. Letters jointly sent by the Food and Drug Administration and the Federal Trade Commission warned Baker and the other organizations that their products for treating COVID-19 were fraudulent. And this is a quote from the letter pose significant risks to patient health and violate federal law. I understand you also have an update on David Jang, Olivet University, and the Christian Post story. Yeah, I do. And at first, you might not think that uh, this is uh, kind of a uh, a big update on that story because it, on the face of it, it looks like a real estate transaction. A two-story office building owned by an organization with ties related to David Jang has sold, but it sold to another Jang-related organization. The specifics are these. Uh, the building, which is located in Nashville, or actually a 
suburb of Nashville called Bellevue sold for about a million dollars. The building, though, was owned by Olivet University, which Jang helped to found. Olivet University was charged with five counts of fraud and money laundering in New York recently. And William Anderson, a former trustee at Olivet University, has pled guilty to the charges against him. According to the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, the fraud charges total about $35 million. So who bought the building? Well, the buyer is a group called Jubilee World, another organization founded by David Jang. Uh, Jubilee World's website says that it is a fellowship comprised of a globally diverse and eclectic body of musicians, dancers, actors, and other members purposed to glorify God through the sacrifices of praise and worship. Well, that doesn't sound too bad. No, it doesn't sound a little wordy, but it doesn't sound like they're doing a bad thing, Um, except the problem is this. Um, We don't know if what they're saying is actually what they're doing. Jubilee World has registered itself as a church, and it doesn't release its Form 990s. So we don't know where its money's coming from, and we don't know where its money is going. The St. Louis Post-Dispatch reported that Jubilee World quietly bought uh, an orphanage, the old St. Mary's Orphanage, uh, an eight-acre campus uh, in uh, St. Louis, and it's now listing that building as Jubilee World's headquarters. And in early 2017, the Post-Dispatch reported uh, on Jubilee's purchase of the famous Roberts Orpheum Theater, which is in downtown St. Louis. But again, Natasha, we don't know where they're getting all this money to buy all those buildings. It's important to remember that the lawsuit against Olivet and the former president of the Christian Post says that they defrauded banks and other institutions out of $35 million. If any of those funds were used to purchase either the Nashville or the St. Louis properties, it's possible that those properties could be subject to seizure. When will we know about that? Well, the sentencing in the Olivet case in New York is going to take place on June the 1st. Warren, let's take a look at another story before we take a break. And that's the story of Salem Media Group. It looks like they could be in financial trouble. Well, Moody's Investors Service downgraded Salem Media Group's a corporate family rating and its senior secured notes from a rating of CAA1 to B3. The forward-looking outlook was also lowered from stable to negative. Okay, for those of us who don't have an MBA in finance, what does this mean? Well, it means that Salem Media Group is just what you said. It's in trouble. It means that it barely has any cash on its balance sheet, and it doesn't have the ability to borrow new money at reasonable rates. Borrowing money, in other words, just got a whole lot more expensive for Salem after this downgrade. Okay, but why should we care? It sounds a lot more like a business story than a ministry story. Yeah, it does. In fact, in some ways, like that Jang story and Olivet story that I just mentioned, there is this kind of interplay between the business and the ministry side of things in a lot of the stories that we report here at Ministry Watch. In this case, Salem Media Group is important to those of us in the ministry world because 
it owns the largest, one of the largest chains of Christian radio stations in the country. And its 2019 revenue was more than $250 million. Close to a third of that revenue came from Christian ministries, such as David Jeremiah's Turning Point Ministries or Charles Stanley's In Touch Ministries or Focus on the Family. So while this company looks like a for-profit, publicly traded company, in fact, it's the recipient of tens of millions of dollars from donors every year. And some of those donor dollars go to pay huge salaries. So for example, Ed Atzinger, who's the CEO of Salem Media Group, makes about a million dollars a year. Warren, we're going to take another break, but when we return, a look at what churches are doing to prepare for a return to normal after the COVID crisis. I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith. More in a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Warren, I know a big part of the ministry of Ministry Watch is to help donors and nonprofit leaders be more effective stewards. You posted a story this week that gets to this part of the mission. Yeah, that's right. It's a story about fraud, or more specifically, how to minimize it. And that is simply to implement basic fraud controls within an organization. Aren't nonprofits already doing that? Well, some are, but nonprofits have fewer internal fraud prevention resources than for-profit organizations, according to a new study. And not only that, this study, which was done by the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, found that between January of 2018 and September of 2019, or about 18 to 20 months, over 190 nonprofits experienced a total of more than $14 million in fraud. And these are just the incidents that they heard about. So this doesn't sound like employees just taking home pencils and paper clips. No, it's not. In fact, uh, the low-level person pilfering office supplies is the very least part of the problem. In more than one-third of the cases, it was done by senior managers, and they tend also to take the most money whenever they do perpetrate some sort of a fraud. Fraudulent activities included outright theft of funds, but it also included conflicts of interest, bribery, and what's called an invoice kickback. So for a Christian ministry— What might that look like? Does it happen a lot? 
Well, the good news is that the vast majority of Christian ministries in this country have leaders who are godly and frugal. They're great stewards of the resources that God has entrusted to them. But, you know, Natasha, we wouldn't be in business if it didn't happen some. Uh, Here's an example that we've reported on in the past. Uh, Jay Seculo at the American Center for Law and Justice says he takes no salary as president, and that's technically accurate. But ACLJ pays millions of dollars for legal services to a for-profit law firm that, guess what, Jay Seculo owns, plus to another nonprofit that is not as well-known as ACLJ, but which does, in fact, pay Jay Seculo a big salary, a salary of about a million dollars. These are called related party transactions. And here's another example. Many celebrity pastors, such as David Jeremiah and Joel Osteen, get paid millions of dollars in book royalties from publishers. But the marketing and promotion of these books are often done by the ministries and the churches that they lead. This sort of thing now happens so often that we don't even notice anymore, but it's a clear conflict of interest. So if I'm a donor or I lead a nonprofit and I want to do the right thing, what should I do? Well, first of all, don't give to an organization if you don't know where the money's going. Read the ministry's financial statements and form 990s. Uh, Anyone with a high school education should be able to make sense out of a form 990. They're easy to find, too, on websites like Charity Navigator and GuideStar. And, of course, we have a database here at Ministry Watch of the 500 largest ministries in the country. You can go there to get a real sense of what these organizations are doing financially. Secondly, I strongly recommend that most donors have a giving plan, just like you would have a household budget. Don't just give on a whim or because you get an email or see some tear-jerking photo or video. Lots of people give $50 or $100 to a bunch of ministries throughout the year. It's much better to give, say, $50 a month to a single ministry that you know and that you trust and that you've investigated than just sowing money willy-nilly to the wind. Now, what about for nonprofit leaders? Any advice for them? Yeah, nonprofits often skimp on safeguards that would prevent fraud. Uh, Nonprofits, according to the study that I just cited, are half as likely as for-profit organizations, for example, to have surprise audits. And more than one-third of nonprofits have no internal controls in place at all. Uh, An internal control might look like this. It might be having one person who is responsible for receiving money into the organization, so for example, receiving donations, but a separate person would be responsible for actually paying the bills. This kind of division of labor uh, makes sure that it is more difficult for a single person to both take money and maybe issue a bogus invoice, which is one of those common forms of fraud that I mentioned earlier. Warren, our final story for the day is a report on what churches are doing to get ready to reopen. That's right. Some churches around the country are going to reopen, in fact, this Sunday. So what are they doing? Well, just one example, uh, Petros Baptist Church in Petros, Tennessee, uh, is opening in phases. It said it was going to start with its Wednesday night uh, services, which is an adult Bible study. They say that that's their least occupied uh, service, and the church will also have face masks available for all attendees. Okay, so that's Tennessee. What about Georgia, where Governor Brian Kemp announced he would allow churches to gather in person? 
Well, he did announce that, but a religion news service story that moved this week said most Georgia churches were, in fact, going to remain closed this week anyway. In fact, uh, Bishop Reginald Jackson, who is the presiding bishop, the prelate uh, in Georgia for the African Methodist Episcopal Church, told his state's 520 AME congregations not to gather this Sunday. He said that um, Governor Kemp was putting economic interest above the safety and well-being of the citizens of Georgia. Now, Kansas City Mayor Quentin Lucas issued a soft reopening order effective for churches. What does that mean? Well, that means that small religious gatherings can happen, including funerals and weddings. Those events are limited to 10 people if the service is inside and 50 people if the service is outside. And even then, they've got to provide social distancing um, uh, restrictions there, and the event organizers have to record names and contact information for all of the attendees. And in your state, North Carolina, Governor Roy Cooper is announcing some loosening of restrictions. Yes, but again, churches and other houses of worship uh, will not be included in that first group. So at least this Sunday, uh, very few churches, if any, are going to be gathering. According to Governor Cooper's guidelines, um, churches can open only in what he's calling stage two of the governor's reopening plan. And that will not go into effect until late May at the very earliest. So what's the bottom line here? Well, for the vast majority of churches in the country, the instructions remain pretty much the same. Stay home and stay safe. If you'd like to read more about the stories we discussed on today's program, just go to ministrywatch.com and you'll find them right on the front page. If you'd like to dig into Ministry Watch archives of hundreds of articles and other great resources, use the search engine also on the front page to find what you're looking for. Yeah. Also, Natasha, before we go, I want to thank um, those of you listening today who made a gift to Ministry Watch on Giving Tuesday now this week. We raised about $2,500 on that day. And let me tell you, we're grateful for each and every one of those dollars. If you missed Giving Tuesday now, but still want to support the ministry, you can go to ministrywatch.com and hit the donate button at the top of the page. I also want to mention that the new rebooted Ministry Watch website just passed its six-month anniversary. I don't like to brag, Natasha, but our Alexa ranking has passed some of the best-known Christian sites out there, and we've logged more than a half million page views just in the first six months. And this podcast, too, continues to grow. If you are one of our new listeners, I'd just like to say welcome. If you like what you've heard, I hope you'll Uh, Be with us each and every week, and I hope you'll tell a friend. And don't forget to rate us on your podcast app. It's absolutely free, doesn't take but a few seconds, and it really does help us out a lot. Our producers for today's program are Rich Rosel and Steve Gandy. We get database and other technical support from Kathy Guttard, Stephen DeBerry, and Casey Suddeth. Writers who contributed to today's program include Krista Brown, Ann Steich, Adele Banks, Steve Raby, and Warren Smith. I'm Natasha Smith in Colorado Springs. And I'm Warren Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina. And you've been listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. May God bless you.